Mental health and mental illness is a big topic today, and an issue that touches many Christians in different ways. And yet, despite the broader awareness and sensitivity that we see today when it comes to mental health struggles, questions and confusion still abound. How should Christians think about mental health in relation to our spiritual lives? Are all mental health struggles the result of personal sin? Is the answer to anxiety and depression simply having more faith, or can medicine ever be part of the answer? My guest today is David Murray, and in our conversation, he responds to many such common questions regarding anxiety, depression, and other forms of mental illness. He also offers advice on how to know if you're struggling with normal feelings of sadness or anxiety versus when it might be time to seek out more help. David is the senior pastor of First Byron Christian Reformed Church in Byron Center, Michigan. He's also a counselor, a regular speaker at conferences, and the author of A Christian's Guide to Mental Illness, Answers to 30 Common Questions from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway podcast. Matt, it's always a pleasure. Uh, Thank you for inviting me on again. Uh, It's always a challenging subject that we're addressing, mental illness, but... um, I think you're very sympathetic to that whole area and always enjoy your conversations. Mm, yeah. Yeah. This is such a, a difficult topic. It's a difficult topic to engage in our own lives and to deal with in the lives of those around us that we love, obviously. But it can also be very difficult just to talk about as Christians and in the church. And so I'm so glad that we get to have this conversation today. And, and my hope is that we can look at common questions that Christians might have about mental illness, questions that they wrestle with themselves, questions that maybe loved ones also wrestle with. And my hope is that you can help us to think a little bit more biblically, a little bit more Christianly about some of these things. So maybe just to start off, give us a succinct definition. What is mental illness? Yeah, it, it really is hard to define, partly because there are such a wide range of mental illnesses, and partly because people's own experience is so different, even of one disorder like, say, depression. And therefore, you know, you can speak maybe generally and say it's a, a malfunction or a disorder of the emotions and the thoughts, but then you avoid addressing issues like spiritual causes as well. So it's always difficult to really get a comprehensive, yet brief and simple definition of mental illness. Maybe just suffice to say it's one of the consequences of living in a broken world, a world broken by sin. And as a consequence, our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our souls are fallen and they are affected by the curse resulting from sin in different ways, resulting in imbalances, resulting in excesses, resulting in gaps, malfunctions that manifest themselves in sometimes in sin, sometimes just in disordered thinking, disordered emotions, and disordered actions. Hmm. Uh, Notice in that definition, you, you mentioned mind, body, and soul as sort of part of contributing to to mental illness. Is is that an intentional uh, way to incorporate those three components of, you know, what makes us human? Definitely, Matt. The the approach I try to take, both in 
diagnosing the problem and in coming up with solutions is what I call uh, a holistic approach. Uh, in other words, we're, we're trying to avoid the extremes of maybe a body-only approach, medication, a soul-only approach, repentance and faith, a mind-only approach, cognitive therapies, trying to really address the whole person because mental illness affects the whole person. And therefore, the broader we can look at this, I think the more accurately we'll address it and the more people will help as well. I think that's why we need so much of the Lord's help in discerning in ourselves and others the different mix of contributing factors, whether it's our genes, our upbringing, our decisions, just illness, a broken body, trauma, abuse. So many factors play into it with so many different effects. Hmm. And that's one of the most difficult things about mental illness is it is so, as you said before, hard to fully capture in a succinct definition. And then the, the contributing factors, the causes can be so diverse. And, and so it's really hard to kind of just nail it down in any way. But maybe as a, another initial question for you, David, um, you speak obviously as a pastor, someone who has a lot of experience counseling and ministering to Christians. You also speak as a father and a husband, and you also speak as someone who has himself struggled with mental illness in the past. I wonder if you could just share a little bit about your own experience there and how that how that factors into your thinking about this topic. Yeah, it, very. It, my experience has very much played into my interest in this condition, this problem. First of all, it came really through my my wife Shona, who's a very bubbly, extrovert, energetic, type A personality. But twenty or so years ago, fell into really deep depression around the birth of our fourth child, and my whole world was turned upside down because I have to be honest, up until that point, I'd always viewed things like depression, anxiety as sins and the result of sin. And yet I knew from knowing my wife and her godliness that that was not the issue here. It was actually much more to do with burnout uh, due to multiple strains upon her and upon us in our families and church and friendships and things like that. And so had to had to really learn fast in trying to help her. Uh, that resulted in me realizing, yeah, this is a much broader problem than just you know addressing a Christian's spiritual condition. And then, as you know, Matt, we've had many conversations about this online, offline. Uh, led into a ministry of writing and speaking on it. But then, a few years ago, ended up falling into a depression and anxiety myself, and. In some ways, that's embarrassing to admit because, you know, here's the depression, anxiety expert or, you know, somebody who's written a lot about it at least. Um, surely if he can avoid depression, we'll hope the rest of us. But I think it just shows that we're all vulnerable. None of us are hmm. too strong, too confident that we can, due to a combination of factors, end up in the midst of this. And I think that old... That verse addressed that age-old problem of pride, you know, like him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And maybe I was overconfident. Maybe I was thinking, yeah, I'm here to help others, but I'll never need help. And then realized, well, David, you're just, you're just as weak and vulnerable as everyone else. And this is more of God's education of you. And I have to say, as it was with Shona, it's ended up being a blessing as well. 
Mm. So how common is mental illness today? I know we hear a lot of stats, and I think the general impression is that it's on the rise in our culture Mm -hmm. and in the U.S., but are are there any other facts or figures that you can give that help paint a picture for how common it is? Yeah, it is hard to be really accurate. I think, obviously, the media tends to distort these things and exaggerate them. But even at the conservative end of the statistical spectrum, there everyone admits this is an increasing problem, especially amongst the young. Uh, the overall figures are something like 15 to 20% of people will have some kind of anxiety disorder in their life. Somewhere between 10, 13% of people will have a major depression at some point in their life. So you're looking at really, you know, something like one in five, even maybe up to one in four, will have some kind of uh, depression or anxiety in their life, the most Mm -hmm. common mental illnesses. Amongst young people, the numbers are getting close to things like percent conservatively, 40%, maybe more on the extreme end of the scale. And... The reasons for that may be more willingness to talk about it, for sure. But I think there are also cultural factors that are playing into it as well. And maybe we can talk about that at some point also. But yeah, I think the way I try and just keep it simple is I think of every fifth person as someone who is struggling with mental illness at some point in their life. Hmm. So all this conversation about uh, especially the common, the prevalence of mental struggles like this, uh, among the people that we we know and interact with, maybe even people listening right now, it kind of raises the question of, well, exactly how do we define uh, a mental illness versus sort of the ordinary emotional struggles that we can sometimes face? So we all feel sad sometimes, we all feel mm-hmm. anxious sometimes and confused in different ways. So how do we know if our emotional struggles qualify, so to speak, as a mental illness? I think that's one of the most important questions to address today because I personally do feel it's over-diagnosed that ordinary sadness, ordinary anxiety is being treated as, you know, a disorder uh, rather than as a normal abnormality in an abnormal world that we simply, you know, seek the Lord's help to persevere through to the other side. So... How do we distinguish between the blues and depression? How do we distinguish between reasonable fear and an anxiety disorder that is debilitating? Now, I was hmm. speaking three degrees or three measurements. The first is breadth. So you'll often find a list of symptoms uh, for anxiety, depression, borderline, PTSD, whatever. And you have to really tick a broad range of these symptoms, not just of one or two. And then I like to talk about depth, which is the intensity of the feeling. So this is not just, oh, I feel a bit down today, but it's really coming to that point of incapacitating a person. It's it's um, lingering. It's causing a person to break down into tears. And then really speaking of the length, how long it's gone on for. So... Usually, in in most articles, websites, they'll talk about two weeks, these symptoms going on. Again, I I think that could be normal, uh, but I think more likely to look at three to four weeks. 
by that time we should be thinking about seeing our doctor. That is unless, you know, there's some kind of suicidal element to this, an idea of committing suicide, then you don't wait. You really have to treat that very urgently. Hmm. And I want to get into that topic a little bit later uh, in our conversation as well. How much of the assessing whether or not we're struggling in a more serious way relates to just assessing kind of the cause of it. I I can imagine someone who's just maybe lost a loved one. Mm. They might might have these feelings of sadness or grief that would certainly last longer than two weeks or three weeks. Mm. How how big a factor is that in kind of assessing, is there a good reason, I guess, for me to be feeling these ways? Or is this something that that doesn't make a lot of sense to feel? That's That's a really helpful distinction, Matt. So yeah, some of the questions I will often ask people in a trying to assess is, you know, has there been a painful loss? Has there been a, a stressful event? Has there been a great disappointment in their life? And if so, then these things should really, if that's all it is, a normal grief reaction, then it's better to let it play out than short circuit it, medicate it. It's part of really processing pain and disappointment and loss in this world, that we seek God's help to persevere through it, that we don't try and just escape from it, whether that's with you know, self-medicating or professional medication. And therefore, finding out what's going on in a person's life is very important in the assessment of distinguishing between a normal sadness and a serious depression. But even when there have been painful losses, painful disappointments, heart events, really by six months, if the person is not getting back to some kind of normality, not perfectly normal, but some kind of normality, then again, we should begin to intervene there and get some expert input. So you've already kind of started to hit on the different causes, if we can call them that, of of mental illnesses that we can experience. Uh, I wonder if you could help summarize what are some of the categories of causes. Uh, Again, understanding that it's not always just one thing. It can be multiple factors that come together. But how do you think about that question when someone comes to you and says, uh, why am I feeling this way? What would your response be? Yeah. So, Obviously, you can have a bit of a checklist in your mind in terms of assessment, but I I don't like using a checklist when I'm talking to people because it just seems too clinical. I know some people like it. I personally don't. I prefer somebody just to tell me their story. And of course, I'm listening out for things that I'll maybe get them to expand upon, but I prefer to hear it more naturally, more normally, more relationally. So I try to to build a, a picture of the person. And so, you know, I'm looking at things like, for example, biology. So I want to know if this person has mental health issues in their family. Is there a genetic issue? Mother, father, brother, sister, and so on. I think that's important to find out. I, I do want to explore a person's life in terms of are they... Will they acknowledge any sinful attitudes, desires, actions that have maybe contributed to this? And from what I've seen, things like pornography addiction, that is very commonly linked to anxiety and depression, I think is a large part of the cause amongst young people today, although they probably don't realize it. Looking for things like 
um, bitterness, lack of forgiveness, overwork, uh, things like that, that can be causes of uh, depression. And then I'm looking for things like abuse. Has this person had wrong done to them either recently or in the distant past? There can be lingering effects of that in in people's lives. Um, Looking at things like their relationships, any stresses in their marriage and so on. What about work? Any conflicts going on there? So just trying to, you know, somebody's described it as, it's like walking down a hotel corridor and on different doors, there's health, there's lifestyle, there's life events, there's genetics, there's conflicts over your working habits, your sexual life or whatever. You're opening the door and seeing what's in there. and mm. But keeping going, never just saying, okay, well, you know, we've opened one door and we've found a problem, that must be what it is. No, we need to explore the whole life so that mm, we don't yeah. miss out any causes. Hmm. So I think sometimes certain Christians can kind of approach this issue, maybe with some of the same perspectives that you you once had when it comes to uh, struggles with anxiety or depression or what have you, where if there's not an obvious traumatic event or, or sad hmm. event that's just happened in someone's life, and yet the person is still struggling, or maybe they themselves are still struggling, it can be really easy to run to, well, this is just a lack of faith. This is just a... Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe evidence of a lack of spiritual vitality. And and I need to just buckle down and pray more, read my Bible more consistently, and this should go away. And if it doesn't, I'm somehow failing in my spiritual life. Uh, What do you think about that way of thinking about this? So it can be an accurate way of thinking, right? I mean, if somebody is backslidden, they've been far away from the Lord, they have not been using the means of grace, they're choosing sinful lifestyle, then it's it's actually one of God's mercies to chastise with depression or anxiety in order to bring someone back. And I think King David in the Old Testament is a classic example of that. But I have to be honest, the vast majority of Christians that I deal with or have dealt with over many years, um, it, it hasn't been that. Now, there have been some, but the vast majority are very diligent in their Christian lives. They are very conscientious, involved in the church, you know, maintaining a personal walk with the Lord, but not falling into any sin. And yet, for these conscientious Christians, it's often the first thing they will go to. Oh, I must have done something wrong, or God must be really angry with me, or maybe I'm not a Christian after all. And therefore, exploring causes it really does help that person begin to shift away from that default of it's all my fault, I'm more guilty than ever, which only increases the depression, begins to see you know, the impact of just life upon a person or the impact of genetics, the impact of maybe, maybe it's not one big thing or even two big things, but just multiple little things. I, I'll often ask people, you know, just tell me about your last two years. And when a person starts to do that, it begins to dawn on them that, wow, man, it's been tough. It's been hard. Mm. You know, no wonder I'm, I'm down. So I think, obviously, the Bible calls us to rejoice in the Lord, and the Bible calls us to have no fear, right? And I think these are very appropriate exhortations to... Christians going through ordinary life. 
But just as we would not expect somebody with a broken leg to run 100 meters, we wouldn't expect somebody with a broken body, a broken brain, a broken chemistry to have all the emotions and the thoughts they need, to have joy and have fearlessness. So we have to temper or we have to adjust our approach depending on the person. And to the one, yeah, we're saying, hey, come on, you don't have cause to be so down or come on, take this fear to the Lord and seek to conquer it in his strength. And then you've got the other person who you're trying to help them see, well, there is a cause for this depression. There is a reason for this anxiety. The response to it is not going to be the same. This is this is not an ordinary life in which we should be ordinarily rejoicing and ordinarily fearless. No, there is good cause here. And therefore, we've got to go deeper and further in trying to address it. Hmm. So, David, would you say that a mature Christian could struggle with mental illness for a prolonged period of time? Is that something that, that is compatible with mature Christian living? Or is even if it's not a result of sin, is it still a sign of spiritual immaturity? No, I, I really believe, Matt, that mature Christians can suffer from depression, anxiety, bipolar, PTSD for prolonged periods of time because their bodies are no different to hmm. other human bodies. Their brains are no different. Um, in some ways, uh, what I've seen, Christians can actually be more liable to fall into these things, partly because we have that in our life where we see our own evil. We hmm. have eyes that see evil in the world a lot more than other people. We are specially targeted by the evil one more than non-Christians, and we feel things more deeply. We are more sensitive and sympathetic, and therefore there are more provocations, there are more catalysts of mental and emotional distress in our lives, and especially as we mature, because we get invited into more people's lives and their pain to try and help them as people see Christ in us. We are tested by God as well. I think we can be like Job was, the godliest person in the world, maybe. And yet God chooses us to be a stage on which he shows his grace. Some of my greatest heroes are Christians with mental illness. They are holding on to Christ. They are holding on to faith with the, the fingernails of their little fingers. When everything else is saying, let go, all their senses, all their thoughts, all their circumstances are saying, let go, and yet they will not let go, and God will not let go of them. And therefore, they have an opportunity to really show the power of God, the sufficiency of grace, um, just as somebody who's going through cancer or somebody who's dealing with diabetes every day. Hmm. So in terms of then addressing these struggles with mental illness that, that we can face, that sometimes even as Christians we can face, how should we think about prayer and Bible reading? Again, that's one of those that it can be easy to either feel that's where we should go first or it's easy to point people there. How should you think about those two responses? Where do they fit in the order of priorities? Yeah, I think the first thing to say is, we have to try and build reserves 
spiritual reserves when we are well. And that's true whether it's a mental illness or a physical illness. That we use the health and the strength and the time that we have to build our, I would say, our vault of truth and our experience of the Lord in prayer so that when these trials do come, we're not starting from ground zero. We, we've already built a strong theology and a strong connection with God. And that's especially important because oftentimes in mental illness, especially the worst kinds like in bipolar, schizophrenia, it is well nigh impossible to get the thoughts in any kind of order so that we can read and process what we're reading, or that when we pray, we are speaking sensible sentences. And therefore, yeah, very important to have these reserves and that connection before this happens. So what I usually say to people is better a little than nothing. Oftentimes, again, if it's very conscientious Christians, they'll be okay, I've got to pray more. I'm going to pray for an hour and I'm going to read my Bible for two hours. And, and it's actually making things worse. I've sometimes had to tell people, look, you need to actually shorten your Bible reading. You need to limit your time in prayer because it's just ending up as a, a multiplier of this pain. It's almost like you're torturing yourself. So hmm. you're, read one verse and pray for one minute, make them count, walk away and trust the Lord to keep you. And don't, build guilt but over time maybe the next week try two minutes a day and then the next week three minutes a day and slowly rebuild and hopefully as other measures are taking place not just bible reading and prayer but other measures as a package of care then that bible reading and prayer will will begin to really grow and increase and it's a time for really gathering other christians around you to pray for you and to read with you and to interact with you in the scriptures very hard when you're down to do that on your own but to have fellowship around you in the word and in prayer is just such a therapy mm. yeah i think that's so true i think we've all experienced that in in probably greater and smaller ways the incredible encouragement and power that comes from letting other christian brothers and sisters in mm. to our struggles letting them uh, speak truth to us when we're having a hard time. But then speak to that, maybe that next step, the step of going to see a counselor or a psychologist, a professional to help with something. H how do we know when that would be a good, wise next step when we're struggling? Yeah, I think a good first step is usually your general practitioner, your family doctor, Unless it's it's extremely serious, but even then, we need help in terms of guidance to whom we should go. And our our family doctor will usually have a list of trusted people, counselors, professionals that can be of immediate help to us. And you know, it's better than say going on the internet and just doing a Google search. Here's somebody we have a connection with, somebody who knows us to some degree, somebody who's built a network of people they trust. That's a good place to start. Ideally. Not necessarily, but ideally, you want a Christian. You certainly don't want someone who's going to undermine Christianity. That's why, again, I think it's important for people to approach their pastors at the same time as they approach their doctors, because the pastor should also have a network of people. He himself will be able to help to some degree, depending on his age and experience. But he should also have a, a good range of people of male and female dealing with different specialities, 
that he can confidently recommend to his sheep and work alongside them, not just delegate and walk away, but walk alongside them. And again, depending on the severity of the situation, you want your pastor involved, you want your doctor involved, you want maybe a mental health professional involved, maybe a biblical counselor involved. And again, just put together a package of people that will vary depending on the person and the situation that will be able to bring their own expertise and address each of the dimensions of our humanity. Hmm. So, so David, you're a pastor, and I wonder if you could speak to pastors just briefly about this issue. Uh, When you think about your own ministry and the way you've grown in your ministry and learned about this topic in particular, mental illness, and how to help people who are suffering, uh, have you learned any lessons? Do you do things differently now than maybe you once did earlier in your pastoral ministry? Are, are there things, mistakes that you've made in the past as a pastor trying to help people that you could avo- counsel other pastors listening to avoid? Oh, many, many, many mistakes, Matt. Yeah, I, as I said, I, I approached this in a completely wrong spirit with wrong thoughts initially in my ministry. And... I'm afraid probably, if I'm honest, I harmed people by blaming them, by accusing them, by not listening to them, by jumping to conclusions. And I've apologized to some people if I've been able to do that and learned hopefully from my mistakes. I do think pastors have a very important role, one of which is on a congregation-wide level, so just bringing it into congregational life, into sermons, into prayers. You know, we talk a lot, and rightly so, about the challenges the church faces with things like abortion, uh, homosexuality, transgender. These things are increasingly common, but they're nowhere near as common as mental illness in our communities and in our churches. And therefore, in terms of proportion of time given, This should be one of the issues pretty near the top in our prayers and in our preaching, our application. And so we want to, again, just generally teach the Bible because, you know, we really believe that these are resources that will help people with the struggles of life so that they don't fall into different kinds of depression or anxiety. Then speaking specifically on mental illness, one of the surveys that I commissioned through Lifeway and folks in the family found that 65% of family and friends and 59% of sufferers, so about two-thirds of people, want their church openly talking about mental illness so it's not so taboo. And yet very few do, uh, maybe maybe once a year. Some people have never heard a sermon that's even referred to it. Uh, 50% of pastors rarely or never speak to their church about mental illness. So, okay, pastor might say, but I'm not equipped to do that. Well, get someone in who can. It's a Christian, another pastor, maybe someone who's gone through it themselves. Why not have a personal testimony from someone within the congregation or someone from outside? Definitely include it in prayer. Maybe not naming people unless you have permission, but certainly praying for it in general. And then counseling, learning how to do this well to your own ability, knowing your own limitations. And having that that network in the community that you build up over years of people that you can bring in, that you can get advice from, or you can uh, co-counsel with. And I think 
maybe the most important thing I could say to pastors is listen and not jump to conclusions. Try and really listen and give people a real chance to speak without them fearing that you're going to jump in with Bible verses or judgment. Really fight against that. The time may come for these things, but to give people help to build their trust in you and that you care for them, that you you love them, you want to spend time with them, you don't just want to pass them on to others, and that you want to learn from them as well. They are some of the best resources we've got. I'm not a pastor, but I could imagine that uh, there were at times when a pastor is sitting there with somebody who's struggling, their desire is to help that person. They, they want to see them make progress and, and flourish in their lives. And so the temptation could be to try to have a solution uh, that you could kind of give to them, something that they can do or change that will make things better. Uh, but it sounds like you're kind of saying uh, maybe the posture should be a little bit slower, a little bit less uh, ready to kind of give the right answer, so to speak, but instead carefully take the time to assess the, the full situation. Yes, because usually it's been a long-standing problem. It's not something that arose this morning. You see your pastor in the afternoon and you're cured by the evening. In the vast majority of cases, people eventually come to their pastor. They've thought about doing that a dozen times over many years or at least many months. And therefore, it's a, it's a deep problem. It's a long-standing problem. And there have been a, there's been a lot of processing by the person. And they want to tell you. They want to get that out. You, they want to get a chance to tell you the whole story without you jumping in. And so often, like the first hour or so, I'm with someone, I'll hardly say a thing. I'll just ask the right questions, hopefully, that will get that story. Do you really affirm them? Really communicate? You're listening, you're caring, you're suffering with them, you're sorry. And, you know, maybe at the end of it, general verses about God's sustaining grace, God's power, God's wisdom, God's providence not jumping in again with solutions, but just trying to build a foundation of truth about God, to trust in the Word of God as trustworthy. And and even second and third time, just gently and patiently moving towards maybe more specific scriptures, maybe some, okay, I know this counselor that can deal with this kind of thinking pattern much better than I can and can help you retrain that thought trauma expert who can help you talk about this in the right way and respond to it in a biblical way. So you're just beginning to gently move a person because it's a long term. It's not going to be fixed quickly, easily. If it's taken a year to get into, it's going to take a year or two to get out of. And that's mm -hmm. why, again, pastors need to involve their elders and other people in the congregation. They cannot be the sole caregiver, but they can be the person that really organizes and really puts together a good package of care. Hmm. So perhaps one of the most common questions that Christians have about these topics is the question of medication. Uh, when it's appropriate, if it's ever appropriate for the Christian to turn to medication to help to treat different kinds of mental illness that we might be suffering with. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to look at the broader culture and and maybe as conservative Christians kind of have the, the mindset of, yeah, look, everyone is prescribing medication all the time. It happens so much. Doctors can sometimes be so ready to do that and kind of numb away the struggles that people are having that might have multiple spiritual causes 
like mm-hmm. we've been talking about. So what's your perspective on medication? How should Christians think about that as one possible way to uh, help treat this? Yeah, you're right. The, there is terrible over-prescription of these medications, and people are not willing to spend any time exploring causes and getting long-term solutions. They just want that quick fix. Uh, doctors are under a lot of pressure just to give the quick fix, and therefore it's a, and the pharmaceutical companies want you to take their quick fix. So it's a fatal combination, really, of people, unfortunately, working against the interests of the sufferer. But having said that, you know, just because people misuse something, which I believe is a good gift of God, all of God's good gifts are misused or abused, doesn't mean we shouldn't use them at all. And it just means we've, we look at them differently, we approach them differently, maybe our timing of our use of them, our reliance on them, that should be different. We shouldn't go to them first unless there's a real you know, life-threatening situation. There are so many other measures that I've tried to cover in my books that we can go to. You know, just things, even simple things like diet, exercise, sleep, friendships, um, hobbies, recreation, getting fresh air, sunshine. Just a number of basics that, that we should be trying and are often missing from people's lives. Even things like a Sabbath, a weekly Sabbath. But sometimes when even all these things are tried very diligently and put together, there's no movement, maybe a person's really sinking. And that is when we mustn't rule out that extra help that I believe God has provided. They're not perfect, these medications. There's still a lot of research to be done. And we shouldn't approach them thoughtlessly, but prayerfully. And I view them more as a rope to somebody down in a pit. The person's tried all these other ways to get out. And here comes this rope ladder and brings you up to maybe at the surface or near the surface where you can begin to use these other things. Counseling can begin to stick. Bible reading can begin again. Prayer is now possible. And now the motivation maybe to do exercise and I'm beginning to stop doing some of the things that were harming me and start doing some of the healthy things I've stopped doing before. So it gives you an ability to use other measures that you didn't have the ability to use before or you couldn't profit from before because you'd got to such a low end. Hmm. So I think viewing it as an assist rather than as the whole solution and praying for God's blessing. Uh, without God's blessing, you know, even our ordinary food will not be, bl- be blessed to us. But I've seen medication have wonderful results in my own life, as well as in the life of others around me. I actually tried to come off my own medication after being on it for two years, thinking, you know, I'd process some of the trauma that I'd gone through and suppressed for many years. I did some other things. I thought, okay, I think, I think I'm up and at them again. Came off A slowly, as you have to, very graduated. And I didn't actually tell my wife, because I she's a doctor. I knew she wouldn't approve of me doing it. So mm. I, I thought, I'll come off it. I won't tell her. I'll wait and see if she can objectively tell the difference. Okay, so two months in, she says to me, David, there's something wrong. 
or something. Mm. She'd noticed irritability, lack of focus, just a general downness, lack of motivation. And she said, you may need to up your medication. I, I can see you slumping. And I said, well, honey, actually, I've been off my meds for a couple of months. She said, David, are you serious? I said, yeah, I, I just, I wanted to to make sure that this was still necessary in my life because I've, I've got a much healthier lifestyle. I'm doing all the things I should do. But obviously, the damage is so deep that it looks like I'll be on this for the rest of my life for the benefit of those around me. And, and obviously my own benefit too. And I think that's often the case with medication that people, oh, I don't want to do it. I know I'm too proud. But the people around you are suffering hugely. And it can be a very selfish decision to say, oh, I'm too holy to take medication. Hmm. So that kind of ties into another question I had that, that I think sometimes we can wonder about. It's Is mental illness something that we're kind of consigned to live with if we have it. So, you know, whether it's some trauma that's happened to us in mm. our past that's affected us deeply, or maybe it's genetics that we just inherited that we didn't have any control over. I think sometimes the question can be, do I just have to sort of let this come when it comes and deal with it the best I can after that? Or are there mm. things that I could do proactively to, to ward it off, to prevent mm. it from happening? Or uh, if I do start to struggle... Are there things that I can do to eventually get past it and not have to deal with it anymore? Uh, what's your thoughts on on those kinds of bigger questions? Yeah, I think there are people that have known some who can be cured of their mental illness. That it might have been a milder one, or it might have been very situational, in which case easier to come out of if it's mild situational the situations can change um or we you know learn to adapt to the situation better and so people can come out they may have been on medication they come off it and they're good for the rest of their lives i would say though in the majority of cases that it does leave us with a vulnerability and therefore i know people in the mental health area would prefer to speak of managing rather than curing. And I think that's a Christian way of looking at trial and affliction as well. And of course, managing involves, first of all, submitting to the fact that this is who I am, for good or for ill, through no fault of my own, or maybe through my fault. This is where I am. And I have to submit to that and accept it and then begin to to deal with it. And that might involve, if I'm at a one out of 10, using all the means will get me to a six out of 10. And accepting that as part of my life, it's, it's almost like accepting that disability as part of God's providence in my life, my thorn in my flesh, as it were, but not a disadvantage in God's hand because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And I've seen the most beautiful, wonderful results come out of Christians finally admitting, speaking publicly, encouraging people all around them with, you know, it's just like, say, somebody has a Christian with autism, a Christian with Asperger's, a Christian with 
some kind of mental disability or physical disability, somebody with diabetes, somebody living with extreme asthma or psoriasis or whatever, these are sometimes usually just the result of living in a fallen body in a fallen world. And God has called us to serve him in these situations with these disorders to show his strength in our weakness. And that is what I've seen over and over and over again. And tremendous relationships are built through these admissions, through these connections. Great usefulness results from it as well. People outside the church see how Christians deal with mental illness in a positive, constructive way that looks for fruit and good from it. So some cures, mostly managing. That doesn't mean just you know, trundling along the bottom, but seeking to get up to a, a, the level, the limits that we can get to. And, and then just living sensibly, learning from what brought us there, learning from what brings us out, and making that part of our lifestyle going forwards. Hmm. So maybe one follow-up question. As we do that, as we, we seek to uh, accept the struggles that God has providentially allowed to come into our life and not try to hide that or try to deny that, now, what's the line between doing that, like you've just said, uh, how is that different than maybe just sort of being complacent in our struggles and, and you know, not pursuing joy mm. in God, not pursuing uh, faith in God in the midst of life's difficulties. Because um, I could hear people maybe hearing some of, uh, hearing what you said a minute ago as sort of giving us a, a pass to just sort of say, I'm always going to be disappointed and discouraged mm-hmm. and sad, and, and so mm-hmm. I don't really need to try to be joyful in God. <laughs> Yeah, I think these people are there. They're, I think they're pretty rare. Most people who have true mental illness do not want to stay there. I mm-hmm. admit there are some who do, you're right, but most don't. It's awful. It's terrible. Sometimes, I mean, I'll just speak personally, you just you want to rip the negative thoughts out of your brain. You know, you wish you could disconnect the memories mm-hmm. that that traumatize you, that haunt you. You you wish you could you know, just lift your spirit above that. There are people who take a defeatist, pacifist view, often using it maybe to try and get sympathy and attention. That is, of course, a known fact in all illnesses. I always go back to the man at the pool of Bethesda. Do you want it? Jesus asked him, do you want him to be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? And you think, well, that's a bit of a silly question. Surely he wants to be made whole. But obviously he didn't. Jesus wouldn't have asked him. And so I will often ask people, do you really want to be, get better? Do you want to get out of this? If they don't, they won't. It's You cannot help people who do not want help. And that's one of the hardest mm. things in mental illness. Often women will say to me, my husband's really depressed, but he just won't get help. He doesn't want help. He won't admit it. Um, very hard to break through that. But um, I would say in most cases, People want help. Hmm. And that, that brings us to maybe a final question, uh, or one of the last couple of questions. Speak to the spouses listening right now, spouses who, who are married to somebody who does seem to struggle. Maybe it's not been diagnosed. Maybe they just are suspicious that there might be some mental illness kind of lurking in the shadows. Uh, what advice 
uh, or encouragement would you give to a husband or a wife who uh, doesn't really know what to do at this point? Yeah, it's it's a very common question that I'm asked because a very common scenario, and it's similar to the one I've just described, which is usually it's a wife asking about a husband. It can be asking about a child, a teen. Teens are also pretty closed often, especially guys. So I think it's to, first of all, try and get the person to tell their story. Don't come like, you're depressed, you need help. Say, tell me what's going on in your life. I, I'm, I'm not saying, you just don't seem yourself. So no, coming in a non-condemning, non-threatening way and n not drawing it back to yourself, look, you're making my life a misery. That just makes the person feel even worse. But just very, look, let's chat, let's talk. Sometimes that won't work. In which case, I often think it's best for to get a male friend involved in this. Maybe the wife could speak to his best friend to say, look, I'm concerned about Jim and this, that. I tried, I can't. Do you think you could, you know, easily, naturally raise this in a conversation? It's especially helpful, of course, that a friend has had some problems in the past, can talk about that, open up, hopefully open mm. up the, the man as well. And I think eventually, if the man is not responding there to that very gentle wife's approach and then very brotherly male friend approach, I think it's time to maybe get some authorities, spiritual authorities in his life involved because this has serious consequences for that marriage, for that family. Before it gets any worse, I think the wife could ask the pastor to get involved and approach. Again, ideally in a non-condemning, non-threatening way. And yet at the end of the day, the guy can still say, no, not, not interested, I'm big, strong, do-it-yourself guy. Until he comes to that lowest point, it's, it's very hard to make any progress, mm. I'm afraid. So David, as a final question, at the very end of your new book, you have a chapter called, What Good Comes Out of Mental Illness? And it's an interesting way to end a book about a really difficult topic, but I wonder if you could just give us a little sense for how you answer that question. I have seen a ton of good come out mm. of mental illness in my wife's life, in my life, in the lives of many that I have helped over the years, much spiritual good, much spiritual fruit, a closer walk with God, greater trust, greater dependence on God, a greater love of the gospel that you know assures us of God's love even when we don't love ourselves, a greater love of heaven, knowing that we're going to the place where not just our bodies but our minds and emotions will be perfect, a greater compassion, for sufferers, not just those with mental illness, but all kinds of weakness. A greater appreciation of Christian joy when it's restored and Christian peace when we enjoy it. So there's a, there's a lot of good that can come out of this at the end of an often long journey, but all the sweeter because of the, the bitterness of the path. Mm. Well, David, thank you so much for that really encouraging final note, pointing us to yeah, the way God can use even our deepest struggles uh, for his glory and for our good. We appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. That was David Murray on mental illness and mental health. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, A Christian's Guide to Mental Illness, Answers to 30 Common Questions. 
pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off, or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.